0: plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans plan features and taxes and fees may vary
1: good morning it's November 20th 2022 I'm Blois Olson and this is Sunday Take well after months of the campaign now the legislature starts to take shape the issues start to form and the dynamics of the economy the mood of the state the polling The policy and the next term are in front of us. We are a week plus away from the next budget forecast. We have new legislative leaders. We have fills to make in the governor's cabinet from departing commissioners. And ultimately, We've got to figure out what direction Minnesota is going to go under the trifecta of DFL leadership. One of those issues is natural resources, mining, iron ore mining and copper nickel mining, not to mention all the issues related to agriculture, uh, forestry, et cetera. Minnesota's economy has largely been built over the years and balanced on those resources. And so we're going to focus part of this show on those resources. What's in the future of iron ore mining? Where Minnesota needs to be positioned on other types of natural resources? And then, before we get to those, we're going to break down. What are the dynamics now that we have committee chairs? What are the dynamics now that we have some commissioners that need to be replaced? And what are the issues that are bubbling to the top? Of Democrats legislative agenda. I'm Blois Olson. Sunday take. We'll be right back.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails.
1: Well, last week, we digested the results of the election, and we talked about the silent surge in the suburbs amongst college-educated independent women. That is how we got the DFL majority in the Senate and the House and in the governor's office. But this week, we start to see what that means. On Friday, leaders of the House and the Senate put out their chairs. And there's some interesting choices. One of the choices is that um, in the House, we have Representative Aisha Gomez as the tax chair. Gomez is a progressive from Minneapolis, very progressive. And so as we look ahead and we start to connect some dots here, the budget forecast is going to come out in the first week of December. That's going to give us an idea of where we are in this biennium, the next biennium, and looking outwards. In other states like California, they have seen surpluses switch to deficits in the out years of a forecast. So one of the things the business community and others are wondering is that even with a $12 billion surplus, will tax increases be on the agenda for DFLers in the legislature? Where's Governor Wall going to come down on tax increases, and so you start to see how the House may become the more progressive and louder body in the Senate. Ann Rest is the tax chair, she's seasoned she's been the tax chair before, and so as you start to see the dynamics pick up here, start to look for where the ideas around revenue may come from in the house. Final point on taxes and revenue, just to be mindful of, is that 27 states in the last several years have done structural tax reform to change their tax system so that it's more stable, that it doesn't have these ebbs and flows of surpluses and deficits. If there was ever a time to at least talk about structural tax reform, it might be when you have a big surplus, because talking about when you're short money is a little risky and everybody agrees to that. So that's one issue, a big issue to watch in the new legislative session. The other thing that's interesting to say is that in the Senate, there is a probably predictable measured approach to what senators became what chairs of committees. In the House, it's less predictable. And so I think what you have in the Senate is a very unified leadership core. And in the House, as we talked to Speaker Hortman last week, there's a lot of new members. Many of them are very progressive. And Speaker Hortman's done a very good job for the last few years holding her caucus together. Jamie Long is the new majority leader. He is very focused on climate. And so I think you're going to start to see some of those climate bills, some of those more progressive members have some leadership uh, uh, opportunities. Athena Hollins is the majority whip. As we pointed out in Friday's morning take, She's a Democratic Socialist, the most progressive part of the Democratic Party. In fact, part of the Democratic Party that even the DFL doesn't want them to have a group within the DFL. Many of these freshmen and second term members in the House are very liberal. And so you look at the House and you start to look at who wasn't on, who didn't get a committee Cedric Frazier, rising star, didn't get a committee. Wally Hurd didn't get a committee. What does that mean? I think it means that they're going to see how things go. What's their role going to be in leadership? I think, you know, other places to watch are Representative Rick Hansen, back to environmental, natural resources, finance, and policy. Representative Vang, leading agriculture. and. Representative Moeller, leading public safety, finance, and policy. She's a prosecutor. That would have been the natural committee for Cedric Fraser to have, but didn't get it. And then property taxes, Dave Lislegard gets property taxes. In the Senate side, Anne Russ being the tax chair. And then you start to look at some of these other places. Judiciary, very stable. Ron Latz. Jobs and economic development, Senate President Bobby Joe Champion. Education finance, Mary Kunish. Education policy, Steve Swadzinski, Bonding, Sandy Pappas. A lot more kind of experience and history amongst the Senate textures. This might seem dry, but one of the things to think about as we go forward in the session is how these bills come forward. What does it mean? How does that work? Because it's those bills and the committees that you hear that will drive the headlines and the policy of this dynamic. So that's what we will watch. That's what we will see. And we will go from there on the legislative pieces. Now let's switch to the Walls administration. There's four commissioners that are not coming back in the second Walls term. They are Jan Malcolm from Health. Mark Phillips from the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board, John Harrington, Public Health, and Heather Mueller from Education. Early in the week, it seemed like all of those made sense, except Heather Mueller, Education Commissioner. And so it's not clear. Obviously, education is going to be a huge issue. The governor is personally invested in it, it's one of the things people talk about a lot. So, who will be the next Education Commissioner? it's going to be an interesting piece where if it is someone totally aligned with Education Minnesota or somebody who may look at some of the education challenges throughout the state and say, we need to look at these things differently. Now, I say that because the issues that Democrats keep floating to the top are more progressive. Remember last week, we talked about abortion being the issue and then legalizing pot. Well, this week, Speaker Hortman says E-12 funding, education funding, is going to be big. Walls calls it a historic opportunity, and that's not different. So then you look at workplace issues. Paid family leave for workforce makes sense, going to be a priority. Unions, a key DFL constituency, likely to push it. But then this week, unions pushed that and floated the idea that Their top priority may be a $15 minimum wage. All of this is to say that despite the trifecta, governing is going to have its challenges. It's going to have plenty of opportunity. But don't think DFLers are going to agree on everything. Because within the DFL, there are multiple groups, there are multiple interests, and there are multiple ideas. That's natural. But as we watch this kind of play out, Democrats are going to have to get aligned. And Republicans would be wise to wait till they're aligned before they criticize or highlight where they're not aligned, because there's going to be plenty of opportunities where they're not aligned. Unemployment rate came out this week. Again, Very low. And of the events I covered and was at this week, there's a couple highlights. On Friday, the Economic Club. We're going to talk more about that through this conversation. On Thursday, the State Chamber Economic Summit. On Wednesday, Minnesota Multi Housing's Changing the Game event, talking about how housing needs to change. Look, Minnesota's issues are complex, and there's not one single solution. And as I just laid out the smaller details of the dynamics of the legislative session, the need for new commissioners. Take your Thanksgiving and remember, let's be thankful that we live in Minnesota. It's a great state and that we have an election that very few people have questioned. When we come back, Lorenzo Gonzalez, the CEO of Cleveland Cliss. He's going to talk about one of these big issues. How do we keep jobs, maintain vitality and vibrancy on the Iron Range? What does the state need to do and how are they going to do it? After that we're going to talk to Jim Boyer. He's professor emeritus from the University of Minnesota on natural resource management. Both gentlemen deeply steeped in the issues related to resource management the state of Minnesota, and how policy and politics seem to be getting in the way. I'm Blake Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Our first interview this week on Sunday Take is with Lorenzo Gonzalez, CEO of Cleveland Cliffs, one of the major mining players in northern Minnesota. And he spoke this week to the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce Economic Summit about the future of mining in northern Minnesota. Lorenzo, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with your large audience.
1: What do you see the future of mining in iron ore in northern Minnesota being right now as you look forward?
2: I think it's a bright future. There's a great opportunity right now for us here in northern Minnesota as we continue to uh, develop the steels that will support the electric- electrification of the car fleets In the United States, both light vehicles, trucks uh, uh, and SUVs. Um, This is a phenomenal chance for us to continue for decades to come to supply the iron ore, that's the feedstock that uh, uh, facilitates the production of steels in blast furnaces and BOFs throughout the Midwest, generating a number of jobs, not only here in northern Minnesota, but throughout the entire Uh, Midwestern states.
1: What does Minnesota have to do to realize those decades of jobs here in Minnesota?
2: I believe the very first thing is to understand for the people in Minnesota, and particularly for the people in the uh, uh, Iron Range, to understand the importance of the resource that they have on the ground. And one. And second, uh, who are the companies that really can make these things transform from uh, or on for the ground to wealth for the people in northern Minnesota. And these are the companies that have been doing this for a long, long time. In our case, Cleveland Cliffs, we are the largest, and we have been around for more than 100 years. And we have a track record of accomplishing things. So we are not a fly-by-night. We haven't started yesterday, and we plan to be here for several decades into the future.
1: One of the issues has been the leases uh, in Nashwalk. You have a potential case in front of the Supreme Court. If if that goes forward, um, how do you kind of see it playing out? Are you committed to Nashuaq and trying to work with the state to get those leases?
2: Yeah, first of all, so for the record, I don't have anything in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, the ones that, uh, that have been squatting in that area for more than yeah. two decades at this point, they do because they lost in a... a, a, a Court of law, mm-hmm. then they lost in a court of appeals, and now they're pledging their case to us, to the Supreme Court, but it's a hail mary, and uh, we don't believe, we, the educated people, don't believe that they have any chance to even have their case uh, uh, taken by the Supreme Court. So I believe we are really in the last inning of this long baseball game, and uh, we finally will have access to the other two-thirds of land in Ashwalk that are outside of the one-third that I already control.
1: Are you ready to negotiate directly with the state to get those leases?
2: We are. We are ready to negotiate. And the, we negotiate in good faith, and we believe that the state will negotiate in good faith as well.
1: Sometimes those leases have been put out to bid. If they're put out
2: to bid, would you bid? No. I already have one-third. So if they put out to bid, uh, I take the chance of uh, someone else getting it, are the two thirds. And then uh, the, the 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 saga that has going, been going on for more than 20 years now will start over. And uh, I'm not going to play that way. Uh,
1: a few years back, you committed or you were ready to build a, a new plant in Nashua, a billion dollar investment. You told the story to the chamber this week about why that plant ended up in, in Ohio. Talk about, your frustration at that point, and and what it meant and how Minnesota could have dealt with that differently.
2: Well, if I had access to the land of Nashwalk at that time, that plant, plain and simple, that plant would be built in Nashwalk. It was so obvious that that was the right play for the state and for Cleveland Cliffs that I had all the engineering done to apply for permits and to start... They' work in Ashwalk right away. But uh, to my surprise, uh, at the 11th hour, I was denied access, and the, 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 the inability to have that plant built in Nashwalk forced me to go to a, another location that ended up being Toledo in Ohio. And I don't regret. Um, it was not my first choice, by any stretch. my first choice was Nashwalk, close to where the pellets are produced and it would have been a, a better investment for us and, of course, a much better outcome for Minnesota. They didn't give me the land. Uh, the thing that they had there, they still have. Uh, uh, a skeleton of a pellet plant that never passed that status of skeleton, at least during the last eight years that I have been participating in this soap opera. And uh, I built my plant. The plant is operating for two years now. And it's the state-of-the-art most modern direct reduction plant in the world. A big success, a big reason why we're able to acquire two steel companies and transform ourselves from a $2 billion in revenue company in 2019 into $20.4 billion revenue company last year, number 171 in the Fortune 500.
1: What, what's the difference between doing business in Ohio and doing business in Minnesota?
2: It's the difference between the weather and in Minnesota, and the weather in Florida. You're implying Florida's better. I'm implying Florida's sunny. And it's cloudy here. It's snowy. It's snowy.
1: Um, when you were in those negotiations uh, on the Nashua plant, Governor Dayton was governor. Governor Walls is governor now. Is there a different attitude or a different tone you're feeling from this administration than the last?
2: Uh, in the recent months, yes. For several years, if the, the change was happening, it was so slow that I could not notice. But in the last few months, I absolutely noticed a change. And uh, I'm very pleased with the change in attitude that I'm seeing from Governor Walz and the DNR.
1: You, let's go back to that weather reference and working in Ohio. Um, how much time, what was the timeline you spent on trying to figure out if Nashuaq was going to work? versus the time it took for you to decide and, and start building in Ohio?
2: In Ohio, I was incentivized by the elected officials, I mean, then the Attorney General Mike DeWine, to apply for a permit even when I was not completely ready because my drawings were prepared for Nashwalk, Minnesota. So I had some changes that were not just cosmetic. It were related to to. ...soil, we're related to water resources, we're related to real things when we're dealing with a a plant of that magnitude. But he said, now, start with the permit and then we'll be moving along and then you'll be fixing the documentation as we go. And that kind of expedited everything. I got my first permit, the permit to break ground in less than three months. Less than three months. So... It was amazing for us that to have been doing business in Minnesota for so long. It was really refreshing
1: as we wrap up this interview um, you you sent a message to all of Minnesota about working for the future and what business leaders need to do here. What was that message?
2: The message that you, I, I think you are finally in the right direction. You finally elect new people to take care of the people 's business. You are not conned into electing the same, old same, and believing that your life will be better. And I'm not talking about Republicans or Democrats. You saw me sitting at the table with a senator-elect Republican and a senator-elect Democrat. I was at the table, at the same table as David Lisegaard, our state representative in the area. So, I don't care if they are Democrats or, or, or Republicans. I care if they are doing the the, the, the work of the, the people, the people that live there, the ones that ultimately vote. And uh, I think for the first time I saw something happening here. I'm very pleased to see that.
1: And by here you mean the politics of the Iron Range?
2: I'm, I'm talking about Minnesota as a state. I believe that uh, you have great people in this state. Uh, I believe that even outside, uh, I would say that uh, uh, my contacts in Washington D.C. through Minnesota are extremely good at the level of Senator Amy Klobuchar, former Senator Al Franken, Senator Tina Smith, Representative Peter Stauber. These are all soldiers of the people of Minnesota in Washington D.C. The problem is here, inside the state. And I see the problem starting to be resolved with this new generation of young politicians. At least now uh, we see the hope that these new folks will do the work of the people.
1: Lorenzo Gonzalez, thanks for joining me on WCCO.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Appreciate it. When we come back, more conversation about the natural resources and the future of Minnesota. I'm Boy Solson on Sunday Take. The final guest this Sunday on Sunday Take is Jim Boyer. He's a former professor at the U. He's studied resource management. He's written a book. Uh, and this is part of the discussion that I laid out at the beginning of the program about how Minnesota has leveraged its resources historically to benefit the economy and what that looks like going forward. It was part of a panel at the Economic Club of Minnesota on Friday, and Jim joins me now. Jim, thanks for joining me. As you've researched forestry, wood, recycling over the years, where does Minnesota stand today, and what do you think the opportunity is going forward for leveraging our resources to benefit the economy?
3: Well, we've certainly got an opportunity. We have two opportunities. One is we have a very rich resource uh, right here within Minnesota that I think we need to find a way to develop. Um, we also uh, need to establish ourselves in a leader, as a leader in uh, non-fuel minerals recovery and recycling. Um, along those lines, however, I, I, I often, I, I talked to a number of groups and I often hear people say, uh, we don't need to develop resources here because all of these uh, problems that we're talking about, all of this need for, for uh, creating a new mine and so forth can simply be solved by recycling. Um, if you take copper as a specific example, a very interesting study, there have been a number of studies of uh, global uh, copper demand in the, in the future, but one of those uh, has come out of the, the Netherlands, uh, the University of Leiden, Uh, and Delft University uh, got together, and they did scenarios around uh, future copper demand. So in all of human history, uh, it's estimated that 700 million tons of copper have been mined. Looking at a scenario in which uh, we do away with fossil fuels globally, uh, the estimate is that between 2015 and 2100, New demand for copper will be 5.6 billion tons. Now remember, 700 million have been mined in all of human history. Wow. Um, If you, and that's 5.6 billion tons if there's no recycling. If we look at the average recycling rate globally and assume that will continue, the average recycling rate is 40%. uh, Recycling rate in the U.S. is 60% for copper. But if we use 40%, then the new demand goes down to 3.36 billion tons. But even if somehow we would magically uh, double the, the global recycling rate to 80%, that still leaves about 1.2 to 1.4 billion tons of new copper demand, uh, which is double uh, the amount of copper that's ever been mined. So recycling certainly a, a part of the problem, and these statistics clearly demonstrate that, but recycling is not, that, that's not the total answer here at all.
1: We think about recycling many things as consumers. How much of that copper demand is driven by the future energy choices, the future technology choices that consumers want, they buy, they need, uh, and really kind of transform that part of the economy, the tech part of the economy?
3: Well, a major part of that demand is driven by that. I mean, uh, a fossil-free energy future... Uh, depends upon uh, solar collectors uh, use copper Uh, a wind uh, turbine uses about uh, forget the exact number but it's something like uh, four to six tons per megawatt Um, a a lot of copper is used in in electric vehicles about three times as much as in a as in a standard vehicle Um, so uh, the way things stand now unless there's some kind of new technology breakthrough uh, Copper is one of about uh, seven or eight uh, minerals that are critical to uh, fossil-free energy development. Um, oh so, yeah.
1: One of the debates here in Minnesota has always been, you know, balancing the environment and you know non-ferrous copper mining. But right now, we're using products that are getting their copper from other parts of the world. Where is copper coming from, and can they sustain the mining there? Because Resources are where they are, but when they're gone, they're gone, and you have to find other places. Where does Minnesota sit compared to the globe in quality of copper and access to copper?
3: Well, as to where the United States gets its copper, we, we import uh, somewhere around 30 to 40% of our copper needs in the United States. Our copper reserves, our known reserves, are about the same size as those in Mexico and about four times those of Canada, we're a net importer from both of those countries. Um, our primary support in the, source in the United States is Chile. Um, and as I indicated in the, the forum this afternoon, uh, the Chilean um, uh, deposits there uh, have been very heavily mined for a very long time. And stunningly, in just about the last only about a decade, the ore quality there has declined uh, 25% or more in just one decade. And the result of that is that the, the average ore quality in Chile now is is as low as pretty, almost anywhere else in the world. And it turns out that if you look at uh, geological survey uh, estimates of the uh, deposits here in Minnesota, we have not only the biggest um, uh, deposit in Undeveloped deposit in the, probably the world, but we also have a very high quality of ore within those deposits.
1: Where do you think, and we talked about this a lot on the panel uh, at the Economic Club, but where are the, I don't know, bottlenecks, log jams between the state government, federal government, administration to administration, uh, and is there a, a model in the past? Uh, around natural resources that maybe the, the current federal government should look to?
3: We need to find a way to to have some sort of regulatory certainty. Uh, we need to develop policies that, that streamline permitting, uh, again, making sure that we give uh, proper care to the environment. But in addition to that, we've got to make sure that whatever policies are put in place um, don't vary drastically drastically from administration to administration, which has kind of been the case in recent decades, Um, which means that any solution we develop has to be bipartisan, uh, and it has to have some buy-in for for long term. Uh,
1: Just as we wrap here, um, there was... Historically, was it Eisenhower or somebody who had this Natural Resources Council? Do we have anything like that, or is that a model that maybe we need to you know, kind of resurrect?
3: Well, it was Truman that, that for, first formed the uh, National Materials Commission, and then um, through the Eisenhower administration that was in place, and then Nixon came along and created the National Commission on Materials Policy. Uh, seven members directly advising the president on, on material uh, trends and so forth and, and what U.S. policy should, should be relative to that. Um, we don't have anything like that in place today. My, my view is that we need to reinstitute something along those lines uh, as soon as we can uh, and get that in the forefront of our, of our thinking and planning. Uh, this Right now, the United States has really, we have put ourselves in a, in a position where we're at a strategic disadvantage. And that's a disadvantage that's only growing larger over time. We need to find a way to fix it.
1: Jim Boyer, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you. I'm Boy Sillson. When it's 9 o'clock on Sunday, it's Sunday Take on WCCO.